Oh, hello. Anyone here as tired as I am? As committed to lycra pants as I am? As horrified by the news or confused about what constitutes dignity anymore? Maybe three years of a global pandemic will do that to you. Oh my gosh, year three. We are going to need some fortifications, some fresh supplies in this time of endless attrition. We are going to need hope, but not shallow optimism. We are going to need courage to live here inside our actual bodies and limitations and relationships. And we are going to need to tell each other the truth. Life is a chronic condition. And if you already know that, first of all, I'm so sorry. That kind of understanding comes at a cost. And it doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It just means that you're human again today. This is a podcast for all of us who understand that we are more limited than we may have realized. Those of us who are trapped by fragile bodies, commitments, dependence, geography, and money and circumstances. For many in the midst of this pandemic, life has shrunk to the size of the room we're in. Everything is no longer possible. We have to learn how to build a beautiful life inside new limitations. We have to learn how to find hope and courage and beauty by setting aside the promises of self-help gurus and Instagram influencers and making peace with our beautiful, terrible finitude. Because there is no cure for being human, but we are all good medicine. So my dears, how's that for a welcome back to our eighth season of the Everything Happens podcast? I'm Kate Bowler, and oh, do I have a treat for you today. You are going to love this one. We have a motto in my family, and we got it from a cartoon on a mug that we all put our kitchen pens in. And it's a cartoon by Sandra Boynton, and it features an elephant lying flat on the ground, just inundated with turkeys. Turkeys everywhere, sitting on him, pecking him, some of them just looking really bored. So the cartoon, in all its inspirational glory, reads, Don't let the turkeys get you down. And it became our family motto after I as a rather unpopular child, knew a lot of turkeys and knew that there was something about perseverance, getting back up, that I would need to learn. Today, I'm talking to someone who also decided that don't let the turkeys get you down would be a perfect motto after experiencing a series of failures and setbacks as she took on a daunting career with very few role models. Who are we when we're faced with the impossible, the unthinkable, the odds stacked against us. Are we forged in the fire? Do we face every trial with a spirit of willful determination? Or do we cultivate a get-back-upness when there is no clear way forward or when we have to reboot our lives again and again? Today's guest needs no introduction, but I'll do it anyway because how lucky am I that I get to be speaking with the absolutely indomitable Katie Couric. Katie Couric is a tireless advocate for people like me, for cancer research. She is an award-winning journalist who has been in all of our living rooms on the Today Show, on CBS Evening News, on our show Katie, and as a correspondent for 60 Minutes. And she has won all of the awards, Emmy, Peabody, Cronkite, 
et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And she is also the best-selling author, including her new memoir, which I have been telling everyone to read, called Going There. And now also runs her own media company called Katie Couric Media. She is also, of course, another victim of the song, Katie, the beautiful lady, you're the only good girl that I adore. And I am incredibly lucky that my life brought me to this moment. Thank you so much for being with me, Katie. Oh, it's so nice to be with you, Kate. Yeah. Are you a Catherine or a Kate? Yes, I have this existential problem. I am a I, I like my diploma name so I can be a serious writer, Catherine, but I'm a I'm a solid Kate. And were you ever called Katie as a kid? Yes, that's exactly right. Yes. By anyone who loved me, it's Katie. <laughs> I love the name. You know, when I was growing up, everyone who was named Catherine was called Kathy. Yes. And then I think Kathy sort of fell out of fashion and Katie replaced Kathy. But um, I feel like I, I was ahead of the curve by, you know, with my yeah. parents calling me Katie instead of Kathy. <laughs> I think your decision to be like, both things all at one time, the Katie, the Katie and the Catherine is so perfectly illustrated in the way you talk about your childhood. Because you're this little girl with all kinds of ambitions and yet very few role models for how a woman with a full life was going to live, one with a career and a happy marriage and maybe even a family. I wonder how you first imagined yourself as someone who could even want for more. Back when I was growing up in the 60s and 70s, Kate, very few women worked, um, at least in sort of our decidedly middle class neighborhood of Arlington, Virginia. It was a real anomaly to find a working mom back in those days. Um, You know, I think there were just not that many opportunities. Women were, I think, programmed to be full-time wives and mothers. And as I write in my book, I, I have so much respect for uh, full-time mothers and the job, jobs they do. But it was just starting to, the possibilities were starting to unfold as I grew up, you know, yeah. and I write about watching Mary Tyler Moore. You know, I remember as a kid being in the living room when I was 11 years old and thinking, well, I'm going to be a model, which is hilarious because I'm five <laughs> three, and listen, I don't have any of the attributes a model would need. But I remember in my mind's eye thinking about what I wanted to do and what who I wanted to be, and luckily, the the women's movement paralleled my formative years. My sisters were great role models for me because they were both very academic. They both went to Smith College. I was rejected, but that's okay. (laughs) But these gender roles were so, um, so well-defined for me throughout most my life. And then suddenly I got to college and I started thinking, I want a career. I want a job. I want to do something in the world. And I knew that I would never be satisfied staying, uh, you know, with my main goal in life being marriage and children. And and I, whenever I say that, I don't want people to think I'm putting down people whose main goals were those. But I wanted, I wanted more. I wanted to, you know, to do something. I wanted to be in the world yeah. in, a, in a very tangible way. 
your dad saw something in you too and he called it moxie which yeah. just, just seemed like so perfectly illustrated when you jazz hands your way past every <laughs> obstacle to get your first job interview but you also had plenty of experiences that could have confirmed your worst fears about yourself early on i'm thinking of the time you went live on air and the president of cnn called to just make every worst dream come true for you well you know yes and no he was right i was all of 23 i was terrible i had never really been on air before the idea that someone my age was going you know doing national stories on an admittedly nascent cable operation was ludicrous on the face of it. But it was a startup back then, and they would let pretty much everyone go on the air, and they were desperate to fill 24 hours of airtime. I remember feeling very deflated, but also, uh, you know, appreciating his comments rationally. And it didn't take me long to realize, Kate, he was right. You know, I wasn't ready to be an on-air reporter. I had I hadn't done it before. Most people go to really small rinky-dink markets and they're, they work their way up, but they just do it and do it and do it, like Malcolm Gladwell says. And, and you know, after 10,000 hours, they get, you know, good at it. And um, it's funny because I I was deflated, but but it, it didn't defeat me. Yeah. Yeah. the joy of being ambitious like i've i i feel the privilege of it and it just oozes from your expression of how much you found meaning and joy and purpose and like a like a divine dating match with your personality as you're rising um well and experimenting and rising through the ranks as a journalist you know it's interesting and also kate like the the early days it's funny i was talking to a woman a couple of days ago, she said, I loved reading your book. And I learned that I learned how hard you worked. You know, for me, you just kind of came onto the scene. And she said, I didn't realize how many places you had to, to you know, live in and how much news you had to cover and how many mistakes you made along the way to end up in this spot. And I think that's a really important life lesson for people because I know I sound like I'm 98 when I say young people today. <laughs> but anyway, I yeah. think it's a great lesson for young people to see, like, you have to pay your dues. And and not only in some punitive way, but paying your dues is learning and growing and making yeah. mistakes and getting better and expanding your pool of knowledge. And and you shouldn't want to go from A to E, right? Because if you do, then you're going to probably fail at E. But if you, if you learn along the way, your chances of success are so much better. And everyone is in such a hurry, it seems to me, and you could probably, you know, speak to this better than I. 
are in, everyone's in such a hurry to climb the ladder without gaining the skills you need to not trip on it. There's a moment in your life that I just felt so much for you as you have this very intense kind of before and after in your life, because you're having this just incredible, you're feeling the the joy of success. You are the co-host of the Today Show. You've got these two gorgeous daughters, Ellie and Carrie, and you're married to a spectacular person and just like feeling the full flush of a life that is working out. And then small details, so small that you might not even have noticed if someone else hadn't pointed out your husband's weight loss or the Tums that he's eating. And I, um, there's something about everything going so right that when it goes so wrong so quickly, like the unraveling is something that's almost hard to explain to someone who hasn't experienced it. That was a very, um, it was hard to write about that, Kate. On the other hand, I remember so much because I think when something like that happens, when something so shattering just boom. comes into your life, you can recall every detail. And I think so much of writing is capturing emotions and recalling, um, you know, these moments. And that was, um, you know, a big portion of my book was writing about Jay's diagnosis at 41 with stage four colon cancer. And it was, um, well, gosh, this is something that certainly you can relate to, Kate. It was, uh, you know, it is the before and after and something I never in a million years envisioned. You know, I, I didn't really even know any people really who had died or died of cancer and you know, at the time, our family was healthy and, you know, my family and then the family that Jay and I made. And so it's really hard to describe the vortex of confusion, terror and grief that you get swallowed up in. And 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 it's so quick because you go from one day doing the Today Show and as I write you know, goofing around with with all these people in my office trying on clothes from the Gap for the spring and going home. And April 3rd, 1997 mm-hmm. is just a day I will never forget. It went from light to dark yeah. in a matter of hours. And, you know, I I really wanted to write about that period in my life because I mean, people like you talk about it and write about it, but there's so little written about illness and about grief and about, you know, what happens when someone you love is diagnosed with a terminal illness. And I think it's incredibly lonely. And I I wanted to to share my experiences and Somebody wrote me this morning, actually, a friend of mine who lives in Denver who lost his wife to Pam to pancreatic cancer. And he wrote me saying it's it's so comforting to know 
that even someone like you who, you know, is intelligent or relatively intelligent and has resources didn't feel like you did it right. Because how do you do it right, actually? How do you, how do you help someone? How do you say goodbye in a way that is right? Nobody gives you a handbook on this. Nobody's written a script. And, and it's something that I hope we as a culture are, can, can discuss more openly. And yeah. I know something that, that you, you want too. It's just, it's sort of the last taboo. Yes, that's right. Yeah. Cause there's this piece of it that it seems like it came very naturally almost that you were going to buck up, like you were going to step into action and advocacy and like the Dr. Katie mode in, in which you can um, rise to the challenge of cancer. And simultaneously, there's such a struggle I find that our culture can't and won't support is how do we know when to act and when to surrender? Because our, our hopes are so precious, but our culture is so sloppy with them. It always just says, oh, you know, everything is possible. Doors are always, <laughs> you know. Right. And if you have the right attitude and, you know, I write about that in my book, which is I find really unnerving, um, as I know you do, uh, that that if you just have a positive attitude and, you know, sometimes I wonder if I was went into this attack mode and this can do and advocacy role because I was too frightened to do the other. I didn't know, I didn't have the tools or the vocabulary or the mental acuity to, to support Jay emotionally. I, I didn't know how to do it. And I was too frightened that I think it was weirdly my default position to become the reporter you know, yeah. to do research, to search for, you know, a cure, to search for a clinical trial, to find out what else could be done. That was weirdly my coping mechanism, which I think ultimately probably wasn't the best way to serve Jay. Mm. Mm. Was it hard then to just move from after all the actions, after there's nothing left to do, was it hard then to know what to say then or how to just be a loving presence without, without solving it? We, we kind of never got to that point. Yeah. I think like, like so many folks that are dealing with a terminal illness, you know, we were always looking for the next treatment. Even if, we, even if that next treatment didn't, wasn't likely to be efficacious, you know? Yeah. I think he was on CPT 11, which was at the time a very, very toxic chemo that just ravaged him mm. physically. But I wrote in my book, I found a letter I had written to my cousin, Carrie Hibbler. It's actually my dad's cousin, Carrie Hibbler from Macon, Mississippi, saying, you know, the, the chemo seems to be working. Keep your fingers crossed. And that was January 21st, three days before Jay died. And I think we were still very much in, in fight mode. 
Yeah. Till the very, very end. Because I don't think we knew how to talk about surrender. I don't think we knew how to say, you know, we never even talked about the fact that Jay might die. You know, it's interesting because I'm visiting my friend Wendy and I met this woman three three years ago named Donna Otis. And Donna um, has about three weeks to live. She's 55 years old. She's a beautiful person. And she, um, you know, had colon cancer that has basically spread everywhere. And she is, to me, my hero because she is handling everything with so much grace and dignity. She has a 22-year-old daughter. Her goal was to see her graduate from college. Her daughter, Giovanna, is taking care of her. I think it's so interesting. She is really controlling the end of her life. She's written her daughter cards for her 30th, 40th, 50th, and 60th, and 70th birthdays. Mm. She did a grandmother book for a future grandchild. I mean, it is just incredible. And I hugged her goodbye yesterday. And it was just, it was so moving. And, you know, she is really, she's so brave. I said, how did you, how did you get at peace? You know, I think she must have gone through all those stages that Elizabeth Kubler-Ross talks about. And she's now firmly in acceptance. But. I think she wants to show her daughter not only how to live, but how to die. And, and it's so instructive for me. Yeah. It's everything I didn't do for Jay. You know, we, we didn't have Jay write Ellie and Carrie a letter or have him on videotape. And I just think that we need, we need to help people with this process. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I mean, you've done remarkable work in this area. (laughs) And how do you see this? I know that that you've struggled with it. Yeah. And you see that, you know, you've let, you're living an incredible life, but acknowledging the limitations. Um, I'm just curious. I know you're here to interview me, but. Yeah, I guess I related so much to. You're like throwing yourself into the fray of action mode. Like I just, I related to that so much because I, uh, because in the face of the impossibility of it, I think it's just, I think it's just love, right? That makes it unthinkable that we could be without each other. So I I could just feel the desire to just like speed everything up. I really understand action. And when you describe like the Dr. Katie mode where you're like calling people and being the advocate and having the conversations and figuring out the clinical trials, like the people who do that in my life have been the most precious to me because it makes me feel like I'm worth saving. You know, someone would be willing to throw themselves into the fire for me. I, that affirms my worth in a way that I, when, when I, when just sickness and doctors and you know, always putting the hospital gown on just makes me feel disposable sometimes. So 
I just also want to affirm how um, how beautiful trying is, and how like the dignity there is in the in the people like you who uh, buck up, you know, in the face of it. I uh, gosh, I <laughs> I just love that more than I can describe. <laughs> but there's this um, yeah, this other part too that I find so hard is in the face of this culture that obsessed with hyper agency, hyper you know, instrumentalism, everything's for something, we can always fix our lives. I have found it, it made me feel like a loser to say I've got limitations. I don't always know what I can do. I don't always know how long my life will be. I've just found that our, our cultural cliches, especially the good vibes only, everything happens for a reason stuff that you and I both have strong feelings about. <laughs> I just, um, I think it's, I think it's very difficult to settle into peace without feeling like it's failure. Do you feel like the pandemic has changed that some, Kate, that that this feeling like we're always in control and we have agency and that we can control and and mm-hmm. decide our destinies? Do you think that that the idea of of that not being true was affirmed during the pandemic in a way? Yeah. Well, I, I'd, I'd like to hope so, but then I study self-help bestsellers. And so I've been reading everything people have, all the, all the you can fix your life that people have been putting on the bestsellers list since the start of the pandemic. And it is obsessively, aggressively you can fix everything. And that seems to be to me another very common response to the constriction of our lives is we, we go back to the control of the only thing we can do, which is yeah. me stuck in my house with my great attitude. You know, so. Right. Well, that's interesting because the less, the less control you have, the more you focus on what you can control. Yeah. And then we're right back to you can fix your life if you just try. And Americans are, she said lovingly and respectfully, you know, this is like the American quality is the can-do spirit. It's just, it can be quite a burden, though, when we, don't, when we don't know if we can or if we need more grace and love for ourselves, especially, especially when we don't know what to do. Because it's, it's really just in the face of the people we love most that we're going to feel the most ridiculous and come undone. I mean, the courage to not fix things when it's when it's your very favorite person in the world or it's, you know, for me, it's like when it's, when it's me and I stare into my son's googly eyes, like that's the stuff that makes us, I think, wild. Like we would want, we would do anything if we could. Agency is so tricky. I I love uh, I love yours because you just um, you're very honest about saying you didn't want to have to do this, but you kept not having a choice, and then you kept having to go back into the impossible again and again and again, and say, "Cancer, I really, we've already done this. I've already learned that lesson. Thanks." You've faced grief more than I I think anyone 
could have would have known until they read this book and saw that grief has been like right there every time. Yeah, it's, uh, you know, when my sister Emily was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer just a couple of years after Jay died, just so ironic, she read the eulogy I wrote for Jay at his at his funeral because I just I just couldn't really do it. And then mm-hmm. to have this happen to her was such such a shock. And I was so deeply entrenched in every aspect of of Jay's care. And Emily's husband, uh, George, is a cardiologist, head of cardiology at the University of Virginia, really well-respected doctor. I remember saying, I can't, I can't roll up my sleeves and look for every clinical trial. But then I, I remember thinking just mentally, I, yeah. I could not immerse myself as deep as I did with Jay. And I didn't have to because George and Emily, they're brilliant and they were able to, to yeah. find certain treatments. But, you know, so I resisted that can do, I'm going to fix this impulse that I have about everything. But that was, that was really so tragic. And she had such a promising political career, as you know, and was such an impressive person. And it was just really tough to see my parents go through that. Uh, They were just, you know, their firstborn child. And I mean, yeah, that, that is that was really, really hard. And then, of course, later in the book, I talk about John. And I was like, Jesus Christ, what the yeah. hell is going on here? Yeah. How many times do I have to do this? <laughs> yeah, think, yeah, because uh, yeah. John was, you know, as as people who read the book will will learn, had a tumor on his liver the size of a coconut. Mm. And I, I thought it was funny when I said I was so sick of this fruit salad of tumors. <laughs> I did love you know? that. You're like, how and, many uh, tragedies the, can be given vegetables and right. fruits? The, the size of a plum, the size of an orange, the size of a coconut. Yeah. Um, but anyway, uh, yeah, that that was that was tough. And I was just like, come on, are you serious, God? Are you really serious here? And luckily, uh, John is funny. He says, I'm the only person who had a, would have a dumb tumor. His wasn't very, uh, it was very indolent, I guess they call it, <laughs> and didn't spread. And so yeah. um, we were just really, really lucky. But, you know, it must be very interesting for you to read this book. Uh, and there must be, it must resonate with you so much. Well, honestly, Katie, I was in love immediately because, you know, when you go through awful things, you, you long for the person who knows what it's like to walk beside them. And uh, and you just like kept getting up, and and then that you're translating this work into advocacy. That you're using all of your reporter skills and connection and creativity to say, okay, well now let's figure out how to make colon cancer, which is genuinely impossible to market as a sexy problem. I mean. Yeah. You, you described the, like, I have walked through, um, I have an obsession with world's largest statues, and I found the world's largest colon and walked through it, and it is, it is, it does not photograph well. I'll tell you that much. Uh-huh. <laughs> so I thought, when you were like, I'm going to figure out how to make cancer advocacy for colon cancer mainstream, I mean, I, for people who don't know, I, 
I'd love to to hear you describe the the lengths to which you went to make to bring visibility to this illness. When Jay got sick, I'd been at the Today Show, I think, five or six years, and I was sort of firmly entrenched. And for people who watch the show, I did have what uh, Adriana, who works with me, calls a parasocial relationship, you know, where people really felt like they knew me. But I think that I had this weird virtual connection with viewers. And, you know, I couldn't exactly go away and not have people know that Jay was sick and that he had passed away. And because of that, I thought I needed to take that moment and and teach them what I had learned the hard way. And that, you know, it's so true that in certain cases, not in younger people, but that that screening saves lives. You know, the colon, colon cancer is so interesting because it's almost like it's got a natural container. Yeah. And if it's caught early and it hasn't penetrated the lymph nodes, which is kind of the gateway when it becomes systemic, um, you know, you can really, you can prevent it. So yeah. I thought I need to, I need to help people understand this, this disease. And, you know, I think of that children's book, Everybody Poops, you know, <laughs> and it's like, yeah, like, it's not our favorite, most <laughs> pleasant part of the body, but it's, it, you need a healthy colon. Yeah. You need, you know, to go to the bathroom, you need to be healthy. And, and I, I tried to demystify and destigmatize the whole thing. And I got a colonoscopy on national television Amazing. and, um, you know, and colon cancer screenings went up 20% because of that, which I always think, well, that translates into a lot of human beings, right? You hear statistics and you think, oh yeah, whatever. But think of how many people, you know, got screened and and then what subset of those people had cancer, their cancer prevented. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's something that I still feel very strongly about. We started, you know, just trying to talk about colons, rectal, rectums, bowels, you know, all that shit <laughs> that that people avoid and um you know and and working with pharmacists and just doing all kinds of work which was i think incredibly therapeutic i think it it combated the powerlessness that was overwhelming during the course of jay's illness um again you know this can do attitude that it's hard it's it's hard to let it go and succumb to the pain. You know, I think a lot of it is pain avoidance, this this constant busyness and working and, you know, what can I do next? You, you know, that keeps your mind from going to really scary, sad places. Yeah, And so then I started with some other women, these incredible type A women stand up to cancer, which because we thought, I thought personally, I, as much as I cared about colon cancer, there's so many cancers that need attention Mm. and funding. And so we started Stand Up to Cancer in 2008 and have raised, I think, over $650, $700 million that are supporting these dream teams of scientists who are collaborating, sharing their knowledge and resources 
it's been a wonderful part of my life to be able to to put, you know, you have something taken away from you. What can you what can you do with that? Can you put something back in the world? Mm-hmm. That that is that's exactly the needle to thread, right? Is um is not be the hypercausal lessons obsessed everything is coordinated to make me a certain kind of person you know uh, we don't have to be grateful to cancer or to any tragedy but just to find a place then of like action and beauty and service feels to me like it creates a landing place for me in the middle of a you know of a hurricane and i can see how much like the joy of doing things Especially like creating a cooperative model of cancer research is a really tricky thing yeah. in in academic systems that are built like feudalism, right? Yeah, so I, right. I, and I, at first, honestly, everyone was like, are you kidding me? I'm going to share my research yeah. with X, Y, or Z. And then suddenly it was so energizing for these scientists, first of all, who are really under the radar and unappreciated and they should be on the cover of every magazine not you know (laughs) i mean to me they are the rock stars of our world you know now they're really thriving in this model and it was tricky at first but there are two scientists who had no interest and now they take family vacations together (laughs) yeah in a system that does not incentivize right kind of sharing that is that is a wild and wonderful accomplishment. You have a gorgeous vulnerability and a wonderful head for hats. And I appreciate <laughs> both of them more than I can say. Katie, <laughs> I've never you. heard those two things together. <laughs> I treasure both. Thank you so much for doing this with me. I can't tell you oh, what it means course. to me. Of course. I mean, I'd love to actually turn I the tables, that. Kate, and have a conversation with everything that you've learned and shared and experienced because I think you're, you have so much wisdom and um, I'd love to explore some of these deep questions with you. Oh, I'd love that. On I, my podcast. I, oh, well, uh, yes, anytime. Yes. <laughs> okay. One, a thousand times. Yes. Grant me the serenity to accept the things I cannot change, courage to change the things I can, and the wisdom to know the difference. That's how the serenity prayer begins. It's adapted from 20th century theologian Reinhold Niebuhr, and it is used by the recovery community around the world, and it gets right at the heart of what Katie and I were discussing. We want to hope against all hope that something might change that we could find a new treatment or a solution that might open up, or that if we just dug a little deeper, things might be different. I certainly love when people have that kind of courage for me. I think it's why I loved studying the prosperity gospel for all those years. Those people know how to hope, and oh, does it feel like love. But hope is just one part of that equation. We need to learn a kind of radical acceptance To be able to speak honestly about how bad things are, how scared we are, how much we don't want to let go. And we need the wisdom, the prudence, to know the difference. 
when to hope and when to let go, because both take tremendous courage. And because we believe in blessing the crap out of each other here at the Everything Happens Project, instead of carpe diem, let's crappe diem. Bless the garbage. Nothing like a little realistic enthusiasm to face the day. Here's a blessing for the courage to try and the wisdom to know when to stop. Blessed are you, faced with the impossible. You do not take your eyes away from what threatens to swallow you whole. You who stare down reality, though your heart quickens. You for whom action comes swiftly as you chart the next step or bulldoze a new path yourself. You know how to turn hope into action and bless you for it. And blessed are you who, when you've come to the end of what is possible, find the courage to live there too, accepting the things that are unchangeable and finding that beauty and meaning and love lives there too. You know what it means to have a life held together by so many loves and so much to lose. Blessed are we who are learning how to hope and how to let go, when to act and when to stop, balancing the impossibility of so much love and so much to fear together. Don't miss an episode. Be sure to subscribe to Everything Happens wherever you listen to podcasts. Oh, and leave a review while you're there. I would love to hear from you. We always read those reviews and love, love, love hearing your stories. They are really special to us. So come find me online at Kate C. Bowler or at katebowler.com. And if you want, join us for Lent. Beginning on Wednesday, March 2nd, we're inviting you to read along with us as we have a good enough Lent. Learn more and download a free discussion guide at katebowler.com slash Lent. That's katebowler.com slash Lent. Here's the part where I get to thank everyone who makes our work at the Everything Happens Initiative possible. Lily Endowment, the Duke Endowment, Duke University, Duke Divinity School, and Faith and Leadership, an online learning resource. Thank you so much for your generous support. And my team, Jessica Ritchie, Harriet Putman, Gwen Higginbotham, Keith Weston, JJ Dickinson, Karen and Jerry Bowler, my parents, and Jeb and Sammy. Your gifts make this work shine. And I'm Kate Bowler, and this is Everything Happens. Mm-hmm.